we are in a series called Discovering Your Identity and Calling. And like he mentioned last week, I got to read over his teaching. Um, the, this practice centers around knowing yourself, who you are and who you aren't, and kind of the implications of all of that. And, um, and the, the whole purpose of this whole thing, this whole conversation we're having with God and other people and working through in the practices is that we would live into the fullness of who God has made us to be, that we would be free to be everything that God designed for us. The problem is we get hung up in all these other things that keep us from actually understanding and knowing what that is. Now tonight, I'm absolutely going to do my best to pick up where you guys left off last week, um, but Josh is a phenomenal teacher and friend, but a phenomenal teacher still. So I'm just going to try to do a pretty good job. And um, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to pick up where you left off last week, um, and we'll start in verse 13. And I'll give you a second. I feel like I'm heavy breathing. Am I? No, just me? Okay. Good. That's encouraging. All right. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As, Jesus, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and a, light, a lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You'll remember last week uh, that this story is the place where Jesus had a pivotal moment in his journey of discovering his identity and calling. At the edge of the Jordan, we find Jesus in complete humility, submitting himself to the Father, to heaven, and finding out of all of that who he really is. And the heartbeat of this uh, text is found in its final line in verse 17. Uh, when, when heaven says, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. With whom I love can be translated my beloved son, which a lot of us are kind of familiar with. And this is the whole essence of this text. The father is calling Jesus his son. And here is a great moment of clarity for him because he's receiving in just that naming his, both his identity and his calling. And while it would be easy, especially if I were Jesus, to get caught up in the implications of that, like if someone dropped the bomb, like, hey, you're God's daughter, I'd be like, you know, but like in a real way, not like in, you're God's daughter and you're a princess, not like that, but like in a deeper way, I would be like, wow, okay, let's think about what that means. Am I like Thor? Am I like, do I get a superpower? Like, what happens now? Can I read minds? Am I doing some cool stuff? And here, Jesus doesn't do any of that. In fact, we, we read that Jesus calls God Father over 175 times in the Gospels. And this isn't just a st statistic, it's an indicator of how he saw himself and how he related to God and to other people. It's really kind of this snapshot of how he lived his life when he was here on earth. Now the easy thing uh, to miss here in this text is where Jesus got his identity from. 
Um, where is he getting his identity and calling? And if we look at the text, we can clearly see that he's getting it from heaven or from God's space, the place where God dwells, where his love is, where his presence is, or from the, the Holy Spirit. We hear this like actual direct connect where he says, this is my son, this moment of declaration. And in this, as we read, it should beg the question in all of us who claim to follow Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, where are we getting our identity and calling? To where are we looking to get our name or to get our identity and what we're doing and how we're living our life? And if you sit here tonight and you just think for a second, just like a little thought experiment or whatever, if you just sat here and you just thought for a second, how much of my identity comes from God or from the scriptures or what I know to be true, what God has spoken about me versus how much of my identity is rooted in what people have said about me or said to me or or I've perceived they've thought about me, how much of that, even tonight, am I living into? And I think if we allowed ourselves to sit, and I mean, I hope you're doing it. I think that's the whole point. I'm, I'm sort of messing with your brain right now, and you don't even know it. But as you think through those things, I think the majority of us, depending on what kind of day you've had, and maybe you had a really great clarifying day where you got to just sit with Jesus, and he got to tell you who you were, but even, even me, even right before coming up here, there's this... Um, lies that, that are old, that linger still when I do certain things. And I think the majority of us would say that often we're ruled by these other identities, these other things that we've put on over and against the truth of what Jesus has said. Now, I'm going to hopefully break this down a little bit and make it practical for us. I want to take some time to look at um, four different places that I think most of us or many of us are tempted to draw our identity from. And maybe we're not just tempted, maybe we're actually drawing our identity from those places. And we'll take a look at those and then we'll look at again what the scriptures have to say about who we are. And then I'll finish. And I think it'll take about an hour and a half, but then we'll get out of here. That is such a cheesy joke, but it's actually true. It might take me that long. No? Okay. Good. Maybe I'll, anyway, maybe it'll end early. I don't know. Okay. Uh, First, Where do some of our identities come from? First, from performance. And this narrative is, I am what I do. You know these people. Um, When you go to a dinner party, what's what's one of the first things people ask you? What do you do? Yeah, and that's a good question, right? Gives you a lot of information when they're like, I don't know, I work at at Chick-fil-A. And I'm like, we should get together, you and I. And hang, spend some more time together, right? What you do is not a bad question. Uh, it's a good question. What we do actually matters. We know that from the scriptures and from all the things we see in Jesus' life. But the problem starts uh, when we make what we do the sum of who we are, what we share with the world. That's, that's all we're offering. And uh, it's easy, right, to find your identity in your career, especially when you're a grown-up. When you're a kid, it's a little bit harder. But when you're a grown-up, it's hard not to be like, I'm a pastor. That's who I am. And so out of that flows all these other things that are true about me. It's hard for you maybe not to say that, that you're an artist or that you work at some bougie coffee shop and that's really important and that's what makes you special or whatever. You know what I mean? We, we, we take kind of adhere to the things that we do and, and use it as an expression for, for what we are, who we are to the world. And it's complicated. It's not as easy as me just being judgmental and being like, you're not just what you do. It's complicated because there's this part of us in, in our humanity that desires to be successful, to reach our potential, and to contribute to the world, to shape the world, all of that is inherently good. But we live in an achievement-oriented society that can't just settle for what's good and what's sufficient, it always wants more. 
what you do and how well you do it is the most important thing about you. That's at least what they're saying to us constantly. And then there's this weird underbelly to this narrative. Underneath it is this inherent lie that in order to become something or some, somebody valuable or worthy, we must do and do more. It's just like seeping in there constantly. Statistics show that we, more than any other generation in human history, have more opportunity to reach our full potential than any generation that's come before, behind us, and yet mental illness is through the roof. In, in his book, The Burnout Society, uh, Han writes, symptoms of depression and feelings of insecurity, inferiority, and fear of failure are the hallmarks of a late modern achievement society, and that is where we live. Comparison, competition, and winning is the name of the game. And despite irrational and blatantly detrimental cultural narratives of failure and success, best and worst, greatest and least, still so many of us get our identity from performance. And it's a sick cycle. And it's easy to get caught up in what you do. And on the flip side, it's easy to get caught up in what you aren't doing. There's always this weird underbelly to these identities. Um, here's what I mean. <laughs> I am what I haven't accomplished. That's what I'm saying. So if I am what I do, then I'm also what I haven't done. I am the sum of my failed marriage, or the sum of my failed career, or I'm the guy who didn't go to college, or I'm the girl who never looked the way that other people looked, and still this narrative condemns and robs and steals us of what's actually true. All these narratives, this like, I do, I, you know, I am what I do, I am what I don't do, all of them demand that you pull out a measuring stick of, of sorts, and not only do you measure yourself, but you measure other people according to what they have done or what they haven't done, and you're constantly looking for the ways that they've missed the mark and that you've missed the mark. And it's just this vicious cycle that's keeping us in bondage. Now, I am sure you can tell because I'm so glamorous up here and breathing so heavy like a football player, but um, that I uh, was a performer in my younger years, and by younger years, I mean like middle school, high school, I was a dancer, all these things, so I got to do shows a lot and um, be on the stage a lot, which is, again, why I'm so light on my feet up here and breathing so delicately. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the thing about shows is that at some point, they have to end. That's the deal, right? So a performance always has an ending. And this is the scary thing about living in this identity of performance. Because at some point, the curtain will close. That facade will wear off. The energy will be lacking and people will no longer be interested, at least in the way that you want them to. And then at that moment, that's the moment where the identity crisis happens. And maybe you know some people who are in that place. Maybe you've lived that. I know that for me, I have in different seasons. Doing is a vital part of being a disciple of Jesus, but it is not the sum total of who we are. So we've got to pay attention to that. We've got to be aware of it. And we've got to ask ourselves how much of that is actually impacting us day to day. Okay, other people get their identity, those other people, uh, they get their identity from uh, possessions. And their narrative is I am what I have, or what I wear, or what I text on, or what I drive, or the mortgage that I pay, or who I'm with. And I think if we're honest, uh, in America it's often I am my education, I am my social status, I am my good looks, and I am my health. 
And it's no secret that America is super materialistic. Uh, and the American mantra is more like work, work more, and then you can get more, and then you can buy more, and you can spend more, and you can do that again. And we're coming into the holidays, and it's already started. You know, it's like starting to seep in already. They're like, you can just buy some stuff. There's just, it's already started. I know most of y'all are like, I have Netflix. I don't know what you're talking about, or whatever. You have the Hulu because you're wealthy, and you don't pay, you pay for the no commercials. But I'm still on the $7.99 plan where I'm like, I'm seeing these commercials still. I'm getting a lot of information about the world. It's actually helpful. So just a tip. <laughs> this narrative labels people by how they appear. And it's a, it's a perceived way of life. Uh, there's an equation, uh, there's, we equate wealth, status, coolness, and fun with what we have. And you can see it in the commercials. They're already seeping out for Christmas. It's already started. I mean, I don't, you don't know, but they're seeping out already. And they're telling us that I can have a boyfriend by Christmas if I go to Macy's and get an outfit that looks a certain way. I mean, like, that's the narrative. I was just watching one last night, and I was like, that's great. Is there a guarantee, or how does that work? You know, how do you lock that in, but that's the narrative they're telling us. If you get this, then you get this, this deeper, more meaningful thing, but it's a facade. Because it's just as ridiculous for me to go to Macy's assuming my outfit's gonna get me a boyfriend as it is for them to invite me to that. Like, it's just a bananas narrative that they're, they're inviting me into. Materialism is, in our country, I think, a religion, and Josh speaks to it so much better than I do, but just like any religion, people are looking to it for identity. So if they wear a suit or a designer watch or designer shoes or a designer purse, I don't even know what things are designer anymore. I mean, I'm just like the not cool person who doesn't know that stuff. But when they do that, they're, they're saying I'm a businessman. I'm a person with money. I'm educated. I'm sophisticated. At least that's what I think when I see people who look clean and put together. That's my perception. And sometimes we see dudes who are wearing, or girls, who are wearing camo and a University of Washington sweatshirt. Is that, is that the cool team here? No, who is, who's the cool team? Cougars. Cougars. Is that University of Washington? Oh, God. Hello, a little help with that. I was going to do southern ones, but I didn't think y'all would care. Anyway, you see those people in the Cougars sweatshirt. Thank you for the help. Um, and, uh, you know, they've got their camo on, Washington sweatshirt, maybe a hat, and they, they're kind of stating to the world, I'm a sportsman. they got their little, whatever, if they're wearing Nikes or Asics or whatever they're wearing. <laughs> That's a joke, because they're not wearing Asics, uh, right? We see that they're sportsmen. Or if you wear a beanie and like a sweatshirt and maybe, you know, like raw, I don't even know if people know what raw denim is. All I know is you're supposed to put it in the freezer or something. It cleans. I just don't think that's true. But, um, you know, you wear cool jeans with the holes in it or whatever, and, and you're like a post-hipster creative person and whatever. And, and we're supposed to perceive that by what you're wearing. Or maybe you're like a cycling-only person and you reject the materialism of your city because you don't want to drive in a car, and that's great. But, or you're a person who drives an Audi SUV and you're running an ad agency or whatever it may be. Or you work at Fisher and you're making tons of cash or whatever it is. Or you're a suburban single family with a yard versus someone who has an upscale apartment. Or you drive a minivan or you drive a motorcycle, whatever it is. We're comparing each other, looking at each other, making assumptions about each other based on what we're wearing, what we're driving, what we're doing, what we have in front of us. And we're doing it whether we know it or not. This one's sneaky. And we're sizing people up based by what we perceive about them, not what we actually know about them. And then that weird thing starts to seep into our brain and tells us that's who we are too. That my impressive iPad here is wooing you and making you think I'm some wealthy person or whatever. This fancy jean dress which is from Target, 
you know, you were thinking it's probably from anthropology. The women know what I'm talking about. But anyway, it's not. It was $12. And that's it. Either way, we have this ability to do that. And, and whether we can laugh about it, but the reality is that so many of us is actually true. Like, I'm, I actually do that. I was doing it last night on Instagram. I was looking at people, and I was making all kinds of assessments without even knowing it. And it wasn't until I laid down in bed that the Lord was like, whoa, you made a lot of assumptions about a lot of people tonight, and you actually need to repent of these assumptions. So I know these are stereotypes. I know it's hard to go like, that's not what everybody's doing when they're trying to, I know that. But there is a reality to it that we have to be willing to embrace and to look at. In our world, I think, especially more than ever, there's a temptation to be um, defined by the things that we have. And it is intoxicating, particularly as we're moving into the holidays. We wanna have more, get more, give more which is good, but again, it's not, not actually a reflection of who we are. Now, the flip side of materialism uh, is that um, we're measured by what we don't have. And this, out of all the identities, is like, they kind of live together, they kind of coexist with one another. You know, I am what I have, but I am equally am what I don't have, right? This narrative can flip in a moment, you cannot have the right thing. Like, I remember I had to, my mom, we were not poor, that's an, but we were sort of poor. And my mom would be like, you know, I went to a Christian school, so the only thing you could show anybody that was cool that didn't look like everybody was your shoes. And my, everyone had Nikes or they had Adidas. And my mom's like, I got you some champions. And those are from, anyway, they're from Payless, which is fine. But I didn't think it was fine at the time and all that. Anyway, all that to say, like, in a moment, I could be considered whatever, less than, because of my champions, as opposed to the moment if I just had a pair of Nikes on, things would have looked a little bit different. You know what I'm saying? It's like really bananas. And it can happen so fast. You know, what you don't have, I don't have a nice car, I, I don't have, and that happened to me this, I got hit, like, I got hit so many times this year in my car, which I think is the fanciest car I've owned, which is like a 2002 Camry, it's the bougiest car I've ever driven, and I mean, just got hit, all the crap got beaten out of her this year, which I'm thankful it hit her, not me, but that, in a moment, I looked cool, and then I didn't, I looked less cool, I looked, whatever. Anyway, she's still tore up, but she's great. Um... Right? I don't drive a nice car, I don't have a nice house, I don't live in that part of town that's now popular, I don't have the clothes that they're wearing, I don't look like they do, I don't have clout or status, and we even look at one another and in some levels we go, I don't have the socioeconomic standing that they do. And, and it's these things that are powerful narratives that are ruling who we are and how we're living. As I was writing this teaching, I was reminded of the poorer people in my life that I have known, and uh, at least I think it's what we would call poor, and I don't, I don't think that's poor <laughs> necessarily. And I even thought about my own family in a season when we went without certain clothes, and we went without certain cars and houses and all of that. And as I reflected, I found myself really grateful for those days and for those people. Because the truth is, there's freedom. For people who are not wrapped up in this identity of what I have or what I don't have, there's freedom from the tyranny of stuff. There's freedom to rest in who you are. There's freedom to rest in who you love because it's all you have. And I think it's in that space of having little or less or what you need that you learn to be grateful in a way that you can't in any other season. When our identity is wrapped up in what we have or don't have, we get bogged down in what I call the, the never enough trap. It's a rat race and it never ends. We have no time 
in that rat race to actually enjoy what we do have because we need more. It's never sufficient. It's never enough. And, and I don't, I'm not speaking to this, too. I just want to be really clear. I'm not speaking to this from, like, the framework of, of all of us in this room are really wealthy. And we are, you know, especially by the world standards. But I'm talking, like, for me, it, it like, creeps in at Target. And, I, I mean, that's funny, but it's also not funny because I can literally walk into Target. I needed to get two candles on Friday, and I came out with, like, not two candles, you know? And it's these small moments where I'm in there, and I'm like, but I do need... I need another candle. My candle wasn't even burned out yet, but I was like, I need a candle because my sister's coming and I'll need a candle. What? Where's the, you know what I mean? I'm like, but I'll need it. And there's this little, it's these little narratives that are actually, actually speaking to me in ways that if I pay attention are, are a little bit terrifying. It's this identity for us specifically and, and most importantly as Americans that we find the most anxiety, that we find the most angst, and the, we find the most gluttony. And in this teaching, even God's been reining that in for me of saying, like, you've been gluttonous with the things that you have. Excessive in ways that you don't need it because you think this is speaking to something about who you are. About how people will perceive you and think of you. And I mean, it has been a big slowdown, (laughs) but a good one. Okay, next. Three, pleasure. I am what I want. Um, I think the most obvious example of this is sexuality where people literally define who they are based on their sexual orientation. And of course, your sexuality is part of your humanity, but it is not the most important thing about you, and I think we would say that a thousand times over and over and over again. And it will never be. This, this expression of this is who I am, this is who I am, it's never gonna quench that thirst, that hunger that you have to find meaning and significance. And it's not just sexuality. For some people, it's travel. I know, there, I know some actual people who like live on the high of traveling. They take like these whirlwind exotic trips and they take Instagram shots of them like under a waterfall. Like if I did it, it would be a big mess. I mean, I'm just telling you, it would be so not a cute picture, um, right? Then there's people day to day who are living day to day for what they want, the day to day desire for food or for happiness. And this identity has been creeping, I think, more specifically into our generation for years. We're not ruled by our wants anymore. It's not even that. It seems like so much more. It's really seeped to a place where I think it's now a belief that we get to have what we want and we deserve what we want. It's this pursuit of hedonism that's now flipped itself on its head and it's become so destructive to who we are as people. I think all of us could say, yeah, I've got some hedonism tendencies, you know, I, 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 like, I like the things I want, like, and I want the things I want, and this is part of me, but the question I'd have to ask you tonight, is it the truest thing about you? It's true that you desire these things, but is it the truest thing about you? And do you want it to be? If I am what I want, then I'm also what I didn't get. That's not unlike I am what I don't have. It's rooted in what you don't have. It's, it's not unlike that. And in its most simple form, this usually looks a lot like bitterness if you're wondering how to identify it. And it's just subtle. It's like that soft layer of bitterness that people carry on them, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're kind of short and snarky. Look, I know I've said it before. I'm going to keep saying it. But I'm, I'm from the South, and that would be slapped off of somebody's face. I mean, real fast, you know? I mean, not a spanking, not abuse. Okay, none of that's helpful. I'm not doing that again. I'm so sorry. But I just, they call it a spank offering. Have you ever heard of that? 
This is getting worse. Just an offering to the Lord. Anyway, I got really hot just for now. Okay. That wasn't helpful. I hope I didn't offend anybody. Um, so it looks like bitterness, right? It's that snarky kind of layer that, that kind of is over people. And it's the feeling that you didn't get what you wanted from fill in the blank, from that relationship that you didn't get what you really wanted. You didn't get to go to that place when you wanted to go. You didn't get to look at, you didn't get to, you know, engage or do something a certain time that you wanted to do it. And it's this narrative that often exists under the surface, but it subtly slips into the role of a victim. So I didn't get to, and I never get to, and it's usually using language like never and always. And it's this narrative, I think, that has stolen, especially from our generation, um, the good and simple pleasures of life. This victimizing narrative perverts the good things that God intended to give us to enjoy. And it's been through gluttony and through just overindulgence that we have made an idol out of the gift that he's given us of these good things. And we've turned God into a dispensary. So if you're wondering if you fit into this narrative, if God is a dispensary to you, if he's someone you go to to get what you want from, then there's a good chance you've been living out of this reality. In this identity, feelings are God. So what you feel matters the most. No matter how it impacts other people, no matter how it impacts even your own life or the consequences of your own life, they are God and you are its discontented slave. And on and on this cycle goes. Finally, fourth, popularity. I am what other people think of me. Now, we all project an image to the world now, rarely does that image correspond to reality, let's be honest, am I right? At least with social media. Because, okay, never, you know, as I was say, some of you don't look familiar. And I've seen your social media. I'm just kidding, that's not true. But that, that would be funny, wouldn't it? Things are not funny. Things are going, they're starting to crumble. I'm just going to pull it in here. Uh, what we present, whether it's on social media or not, is usually a little airbrushed, composed, or staged. And let's be honest, it's really easy to do that in our society today. It's easy to do it not just by way of social media, but in other forms and spectrums of, of our time together. We've just, we're such an oddly advanced society that we have the ability to look like and make ourselves look like things are going well. Some of us never actually grow, outgrow the high school cafeteria scene. You know, we walk into a room, we feel the pressure, like we need to show off, we need to brag a bit, we need to one-up or impress somebody, or we need to fit in with a certain group of people, and so we do this weird, like, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, like, here I am, and, uh, and you're doing whatever you do, that's what I do, <laughs> and uh, you can guess what table I sat at, and, um, and that's what we do, we're trying to fit in, there's just, just a desire for, for, for hearing and seeing and understanding what people actually think about you. When I was younger, my mom, who's a real straight shooter, said, Bethany, there's, and she said this, and still says it, especially if I call her crying, she said, Bethany, there will always be someone cooler, prettier, richer, smarter, funnier, impossible, uh, skinnier, better educated, etc. than you. Always. There's always going to be somebody you look at and think, they have what I don't have. And my mom isn't mean, well, sometimes, but she's not. She wasn't trying to be. I think... Um, she was helping me wrestle through the losing game in life that we all play. We constantly, whether we do it all the time or don't, we have this narrative in us where we're, we're wanting 
to have the approval of other people. We're wanting to know what people think about us. We want to hear our names mentioned. We want to know what you think. Do you think I'm pretty or not? Do you think I'm funny? Do you think I'm cool? All of that. And we desire that by everyone, everywhere. And this isn't new to humanity. This isn't a new condition. But it is exacerbated by things like social media, where we're liking each other. Just, I mean, like, what's it mean? What's a like mean? Does it mean you want to date me? Does it mean you think I look pretty? Does it mean you're just feeling sorry for me? And we don't even know what it means, right? There's no even measurable way to figure that stuff out. It's easy to project images that make your life look better than they are. And then it's easy for you to believe that that matters. We're so swept up into the narrative of it that we get lost and start to go, yeah, I guess it does matter that nobody like, and I don't know, I'm just going to be really authentic, it could be the drugs talking, I don't know, but I have, I've had moments like that where I've had to catch myself going like, who cares? That's not, we don't even know if they actually like you. Someone's probably sending you a hate email right now, I mean, that's just how it works, right? Like, this is not, these are not all your people, these are not all, this is not who you are, this isn't. Not who you, it doesn't, the goodness of who you are, the the person that you are, isn't measured by whatever these things look like. And it's weird to watch, and and I'm, you know, I'm getting older, so I care less, but it's weird to watch the emotional state of people I'm meeting with all the time rise and fall based on the numbers of likes that they got, or followers that they have. Or, it's hard, it's always been hard as a pastor to to, to see how much people's morale changes depending on the approval they got that day or praise they got or admiration they got from certain people at certain times or certain groups. And I hate it about myself, too. I hate that I can leave a time like this and feel insecure and think, oh, I mean, I think everyone's talking about me at their dinner table tonight because you won't be. You're going to go eat something and you're going to be fine. Some of you all are going to go downstairs and eat some pizza or whatever. But in my head, you're going to be thinking about me all night long, <laughs> which, you know, whatever. Maybe two of you will, but that's your business. Either way, it's hard to escape that reality. If others say things are good, often we're good. If others say things are bad, then often we kind of begin to spin out and we lose an entire our entire sense of self. And if that's true of us, even at some level, then it's a warning sign to us that our identity is not where it should be. Henry Nouwen summed this up beautifully when he said, when we believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, it's then that success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. And catch, catch what he's saying there. He's saying that Identity starts with a belief, this one, this particular one, starts with the belief that we are worthless and unlovable as we are. That if others don't speak about who we are, then we are nothing. And we may not say it out loud if asked, but if we were hard-pressed long enough, we are guaranteed that at the heart of this identity is this belief system. And on the flip side, we're also what other people don't think of us, right? At least if you're thinking about me negatively, you're thinking about me, right? But, but there's this other rub in us, particularly in this day and age, where I'm bummed if, if you don't see what I'm actually putting out there. If you don't see me at all, then I'm nothing. If you don't acknowledge me, then I'm not even here. That if you don't see me as cool or put together, then I'm not that. That if you don't acknowledge that I'm skilled or I'm able to solve a problem or whatever, or there's other people doing it better than me and you're like, you guys are do- you're doing a great job, you're not doing it, whatever, then I'm all of a sudden unimportant. 
Um, this is an interesting dynamic because all of us want to be seen, all of us want to be cared for, all of us um, want to be valued, but the measuring stick is broken. Insecurity, anger, and exhaustion are what surface for people who live out of this identity because you're constantly needing the approval of other people in order to be valuable and to believe that you have worth. And it's never enough. Now, obviously these are all really depressing at some level, but the point is, is that there are all sorts of places, and this isn't the sum total of them all, where people get their identity or their calling. People get it through performance, possessions, pleasure, popularity, and so on and so forth. And the danger here in all of this is that your identity is tied to your sense of self-worth. I matter because I am fill in the blank. I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I'm whatever. It's dangerous when your identity is tied to your sense of security. I'm safe because I belong with my tribe. These are my people who know me and love me. It's dangerous when it's tied to your sense of happiness I'm happy because I have a boyfriend. I'm happy because I have an iPhone or new iPhone. I'm happy because I got a new car. I'm happy because I got the house that I wanted. And the biggest danger of all is that all of these identities can be taken away. In fact, with certainty, I can tell you that they will be. Some will simply dissolve with age because you get old and stuff happens, man. Stuff starts falling apart real quick. Others will be impacted by the natural cycle of life, of evil and death, and different things we encounter in this world. And it's a scary, threatening moment if we think through what could happen if your identity was in your performance and you lost your job, or if I lost my job. What would happen to me if I was no longer an official pastor? And you don't know me well, but that would really matter to me. That would really impact me and how I view myself, and what does that say about me? What happens if you fail out of that program and you're unable to reapply? What happens then? What happens if your identity is in your possessions and you lose your job and then you lose your possessions and you actually have to sell those possessions? What happens if you get pleasure um, from what you want and you lose that relationship or you lose whatever the object of your desire is? What happens to who you are then? What happens if you get your identity from popularity and you get old and you gain weight? You know, or you betray or disappoint or fail friends and you betray them to the point where they cannot be in relationship with you. And here's the worst part about living out of false identities. In order to survive these, we all have to move into sinful rhythms of arrogance, martyrdom, and condescension to survive. That's how that works. In order to survive these false identities, we have to move into these weird rhythms of like, I'm better than everybody else, or I'm the victim and nobody lives. And I'm not saying that stuff's invalid. I don't know, I don't know your story, but these are real parts or condescension like, oh, if you, if, you know what, you can, you'll get there. You, will, you know what I mean? That, that kind of narrative. And we become small people, not active, vibrant Jesus follower people who are reflecting the goodness, kindness, and glory of God. We become small and angry and above all insecure. And we're crippled by the, incapable, the incapability of living into the fullness of who God intended us to be. All of these in the language of Jesus are built on the house of sand. The house that's built on the sand which will be swept away in a moment when the waves come in. If we had time, and I don't think we do, because I don't have a clock, so, <laughs> sorry. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we find the story of our first parents of Adam and Eve. And in this story, and maybe you're familiar with it, there's a snake and he talks or whatever. It's really a cool story. But it's when sin kind of entered the picture of humanity. And we find Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobeying God's command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the one thing God had asked them not to do, but gave them the freedom to choose to do. And so they did it, and in this disobedience, they didn't simply reject God and what he had asked them to do. They actually rejected everything that was true about themselves as well. In their moment of their disobedience, we all entered into a spiritual schizophrenia. That's what I call it with my girls. (laughs) Meaning that the fabric of our identity was ripped into, separated from God, which is where we actually find our identity. Our identity in that moment became divorced from him, and we as people have been trying to reconcile that, building these other identities, hoping we're going to get to that point where we feel fulfilled, where we feel like we're back to where we were. Now, for me, if I'm living in these weird identities, I'm swinging back and forth to these things I call not enough and too much. I constantly live in the cycle of that. That's how you kind of know if you're living out of the wrong identity. If you're constantly thinking, like, I'm too much, you leave a group, and you, you thought you did a really good job being cool, but then you kept thinking about it, and you're like, I was too much, I talked too much, I did too much, I whatever too much, and I'm not resting in the reality of who I actually am, right? Or I swing to the other side, and I just go, I wasn't enough. I wasn't pretty enough for that group of people. I wasn't whatever, I'm filling your blank. I wasn't smart enough. I didn't know how to talk business with the guys or whatever, and you're swinging back and forth. That's what it looks like for me, and I'm constantly able to recognize that when I hear those two narratives, wondering how it was perceived, if someone liked me, if they didn't like me. If we live out of these false senses of self, these different identities, we, we won't. We won't measure up. It's just the reality of it, and we will get dizzy. We should get dizzy to the point of sickness, and we do usually, and we spin out, and then we try it again, and we keep trying again, try it again, try it again. It's a cycle that never ends, but that's how we know we're living out of the wrong places. Now, I say all that not to make you depressed, but just to to speak a little bit um, into the goodness of Jesus here. This is why Jesus has asked us um, to, to know our identity and calling, and to know where it comes from, and to know who speaks it to us. Now, unlike Jesus, none of us, I don't know, maybe you have heard, but I didn't get a baptism experience where I came up out of the water and he said, this is my beloved daughter and whom I'm well pleased and I got a picture or whatever. That didn't happen for me. And I doubt it happened for you, right? So we can say that was Jesus. This was his story. He had clarity. He knew what he had to do. He was the son of God. So there's probably other things that he knew that we don't know or whatever, but it's not me. So I'd love for you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter one. And Josh, can you actually tell me how I'm doing on time? Now, what's the real number? <laughs> yeah, I think they might. So, like 10 minutes or like 5 minutes? Okay, good. Okay, great. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start at the very beginning. If you don't know about the book of Ephesians, um, it's a letter written to the New Testament church, written... Um, after Jesus by Paul to this young community that was still working out what it meant to be followers of Jesus. And it is the passage if you want to know about your identity. It is the numero uno passage for it. So we're going to read verses 1 to 14. I know it's a good bit, but just hang in there with me. Says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the, the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we were the first to put our hope in Christ, that we who, put, who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, and promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. No period in there, I mean hardly at all. It's very hard to breathe up here as you've already noted and that was extraordinarily hard. A couple of things I just wanna say and then I'm gonna to try to finish up. I don't even, I don't know what's happening. I don't know, what day is it? What, did I fall asleep? What I don't want you to miss here is that um, there's a lot of language in here of in Christ or in Christos. Uh, and this phrase is used over 150 times in the New Testament. It's how Paul uh, talks about identity. In theology, this is what we call incorporation or union. And the, basic of, uh, the basics of this idea is that you're incorporated, you're in union with Christ when you say yes to him, when you are buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. When that happens, what is true about Christ is now true about you. And the key, I know it's a big thing. What's true about Christ is true about me. I know that's a big concept to try to wrap your head around. Um, but it's this beautiful language. And I'm going to quote N.T. Wright, who we love. But he has a great way of explaining this. Christ uh, in the Greek is translated, it's the word for Messiah. You know, have you heard that? And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Messiah, uh, the Messiah is Israel's representative and it's, his res it's their rescuer. I'm not speaking proper English tonight. I don't know what I just said. But let me read to you what N.T. Wright said about all this in his book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Apparently it's a super huge book that none of us have actually read, but we quote from regularly. So here we go. I can't, I'll get dizzy looking at that. So I'm going to look here. Uh, when Paul speaks of us as being in Christ, the center of what he means is that as in some Jewish thought, the king represents his people. So that what happens to him happens to them. And what is true of him is true of them. Think of David fighting Goliath. David was representing Israel. He had already been anointed as king, and it wasn't long after his victory before people realized that he was the one who would lead Israel into God's future. So with us, Jesus has won the decisive victory over the oldest and darkest enemy of all. And if we are in him, in the king, in Christ, we shall discover step by step what that means. The David and Goliath story is perfect. King David becomes Israel's victory. His freedom became their freedom. His kingdom became their kingdom. And in the same way through Jesus, Jesus, we now have access to the kingdom of God. So it's this idea of incorporation where 
where his victory is our victory. His life is our life. His death was our death. This is where we get that weird cliche, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, you know? I mean, it's true, and it's an oversimplification, but it's still true. Um, and, and all of this, all of that, that big concept has implications for your identity, and I'm gonna sort of close this out with this a little bit. If you look back at Ephesians 1, and, and maybe you wanna underline this, maybe you don't wanna underline this, but I want you to look at all the identity statements that Paul makes about you. He says, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're chosen before the creation of the world. You're holy and blameless, loved, predestined, adopted as sons and daughters. You're under God's pleasure. You're in God's will to the praise of his glorious grace. You're redeemed, forgiven, rich in God's grace, wise and understanding, aware of the mystery of Christ, chosen for the praise of his glory, included, saved, sealed with the Holy Spirit, God's possession, in line for an inheritance, hallelujah, and for the praise of his glory. These are just some of the things in the first section we just read that are true about you in Ephesians chapter 1. Just the first section. This is who you are. This is where your identity lies. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I'm not blameless, and I'm not holy. Last night I looked at porn. This morning I lied to my wife, whatever it may be. You have this narrative, this battle inside you, and I get it. I have the same thing. But it's still true, this concept that we're talking about. There's this theological term called eschatological realism, which like, I don't mean to be nerdy on you, but I hope you're really impressed. Eschatological is this idea of something that happens in the future and realism is realism. It's something that's being realized. And this is the concept we're looking at when we look at Ephesians chapter one. That we're looking towards the future of who we're going to be in the kingdom of God as we follow him. Paul and, and the rest, he's got like one to chapter three. It's all about who you are. So if you want to do some stuff this week, you could read Ephesians one through three and just be really blessed. But then you're going to get to chapter four. And hopefully it's going to mess you up a little bit because he gets into this rhythm where he's setting us up. It's called, an, um, what's it called? Indicative imperative. Is that right? Is that what he's doing? I wrote it down. I'm not going to try to be smart. Anyway, he's building up to this point in Ephesians chapter 4 where he's saying, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are. This is who you are. And then he says, and now that you know who you are, live this way. Live in such a way that is honoring. And what you're going to have to do as you step into the reality of who you are in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm not going to make, well, I'm going to read it to you because, well, no. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you it. But this is where he says, you know that language where he says, you're going to put off your old self and you're going to put on your new self. Do you remember that? And he uses the imagery of clothing. And he says, you're going to put it on like clothes. You're going to take off the old crap that's like muddy and filled with other, these weird identities, all these things that are not true about you, that you're, you know, whatever it is. And I, I just even had a sense earlier today that there's people even in the room who believe they're whatever their sexual past has been. I'm this person. I'm the one who cheats. I'm the one who... I'm the one who messes around too early, I'm the whatever, and you just take that off, and you put on what's true about you, you put on your rightful identity, and then you live into that, you know? If you have a wet shirt from like, I don't know, working outside or working out, what a concept, but you walk around kind of yucky all day, you're like, I'm so sorry, I smell a little bit, I, you know what I mean, I smell, I'm so sorry, don't touch me because I'm sweating a little bit, right? But if you have a fresh, clean shirt on, you look really cute, you're fine with people touching you or hugging you, that's totally fine right? And it's that idea, Paul's trying to paint this picture of when you put on what's true about you in Christ, then you're able to walk around and embrace all that you are and embrace the people of God that are around you to love them and to care for them and all of that. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And that is what's true about you. James K.A. Smith, I promise I'm closing. I don't know. It feels like two hours. Um, 
in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, says to be human is to love. And it is what we love that defines who we are. Now that sounds like hocus pocusy, I know. But then he goes on to say our love is constitutive, I'm never saying that right, of our identity. Another way to say that is love, what we love is essential to the core of our identity. If we love him, if we behold Jesus, if we fix our affections on him, then then our identity comes into alignment. Then we're, we're rightfully walking into all that he's called us to do. Then we're putting on the right clothes and walking in the reality of what the scriptures have said about who we are. And everything, the ecosystem of the kingdom of God is radically shifted and it's changed. And not only the ecosystem of the kingdom of God, but the ecosystem of your relationship with Jesus is radically changed. The air gets cleared and you get to live as he intended you to live in perfect intimacy and perfect union with him. Now, you've got a practice if you're in a community here at Van City to do, and you've got some exercises to do, which is gonna be really fun, but the main essence of the practice this week is that you're gonna go around the room, probably for the next couple weeks, if we're being totally honest, and you're gonna pray for each person in your community. And you're gonna ask uh, God through listening prayer or whatever means that you're praying. Um, You're gonna bless these people. You're gonna ask God what their identity and their calling is. You're gonna speak prophetic words. You're gonna just, if you don't have anything, you're gonna pray a blessing over them. You're gonna speak to them what you see in them and call those things out because each of us needs that. All of us need to hear from the people who are around us and loving us who we are, and we believe God wants to, to speak to the communities and transform them by way of speaking.